Welcome to the Focus on Why podcast. I'm Amy Rowlandson and I ask my guests one simple question, why? Focusing on the importance of why, I share with you the relatable, uplifting and inspiring conversations I have with people from all walks of life. This podcast will encourage you to focus on your why to enable and empower you to achieve the success you desire. Have a purpose, have a plan, focus on why. Today on the Focus on Why podcast, I am joined by Peter Edge. Peter, a very warm welcome. Thanks very much. And why are you here today? Um, well, I'm here today, I suppose, to tell you a little bit about myself and, and how I've got where I've got. Just to, to start that, I'm, I'm now uh, a sometime professional speaker and stand-up comedian, um, but I wasn't always. <laughs> and uh, the journey to get to that stage has been um, an interesting one, you might say. So if I take you right back to, to where I started from as a as a as a school leaver at the ripe old age of 17 and a half, 18, I went to Liverpool University to study dentistry, of all things. I've been sort of channeled that way as a result of my um, I suppose preferred subjects in the sciences. And the school I was at was very much geared to producing professional people. So you know, if you were doing sciences, the idea was you'd be either a vet, a doctor, or a dentist. Uh, and I wasn't clever enough to be either a, a doctor or a vet, so I went to do dentistry. It, it helped that my two elder sisters were, were both dentists as well. So I went studying dentistry at Liverpool, um, got to the end of the first year, having had a whale of a time. Back in the days when you used to get a grant to go to, to university, <clears throat> And having been in a, a, a single-sex boys' grammar school educated by the Irish Christian brothers, um, needless to say, the freedoms of university life I found quite attractive. Um, and they competed very successfully with the uh, requirements to study and do exams. So it really came as no surprise that at the end of my first year, I didn't do terribly well. Uh, so having failed my exams, I resat them passed the ones I'd failed and failed the ones I'd already passed. So um, myself and dentistry parted. And I went to do what I'd always wanted to do, really, I think, in my in my heart, which was to become a police officer. Um, and so I went literally straight from what they used to call the progress interview at university. And a friend of mine picked me up in his car. We drove straight to Hope Street Police Station, which was then the headquarters of Merseyside Police I walked in the front door and said, I'd like to join the police, please. And the rest, as they say, is uh, is history. So that was in the days, of course, when you could join the police quite young. Uh, so I was, what, 19 and a half when I joined the police in 1981. And it was, uh, it was a hell of a journey. Um, I was pitched in straight away to the Toxteth riots of 1981. Um, which was a real baptism of fire. And I remember thinking during the middle of that, I wish I'd stayed in dentistry. Uh, in fact, I always used to walk around. I had a little uh, a little book in my pocket um, and the, the anatomists would, uh, would, would know this book. It's a book uh, by a fellow called Alf Brodal called um, Cranial Nerves. And so I was, I constantly had this in my tunic pocket, thinking that I might actually go and reset my exams again and go back. But no, I, I fell in love with policing. Um, really did. It, it was, for me, it was a vocation. Um, I, I felt very much uh, a sense of responsibility and, and duty to, to help, to help people, to protect people from, um, those in society who would take advantage of the vulnerable um, and there are plenty of them out there and that's what, that's what drove me into it really um and and as i say i fell in love with it i did a few years in uniform um before i sort of moved into vice plain clothes drugs um, prostitution licensing all the juicy stuff um and then again more into more specialised drugs investigations in the drug squad before being promoted out and again going through that cycle of uniform back into um, plain clothes, back into the drug squad. And I was flying. 
I was absolutely flying. Um, I was a bright young thing. In those days, uh, even though I didn't have a degree, I had O-levels and A-levels. So I was considered to be uh, educationally qualified. In fact, that's the expression that the uh, the guy at the recruitment office said when I walked into Hope Street. He said, oh, just hang on there a minute. The chief inspector will want to speak to you because you're educationally qualified. You know, we have people now with PhDs. You know, I'm not sure when I joined, you had to even be able to read and write. You just had to know someone who could. Um, but, you know, having having got in and being reasonably well-educated, I, I flew through the ranks. Um, and in about 1996, I was promoted to Detective Chief Inspector, which made me the youngest DCI in Merseyside Police. Um, I had loads of allies. I had loads of people pushing for me. I had loads of people pushing me to, to higher rank. And at that point, um, there's a sort of, uh, there's a maxim in the police, really, which is that if you're going to reach chief officer level, so assistant chief constable and beyond, you should be a superintendent by the time you're 40. So I was a chief inspector by the time I was 35. That gave me five years to become a superintendent if I was going to be on track. Um, and I was doing really well. I was well thought of. Um, again, I was being given extra work. I was being pushed. Um, and I had some some allies in uh, in headquarters who would uh, fight my corner and, um, and take my paper into the room, if you like, to coin a phrase. And then... Uh, on the 1st of October, 1998, it all went horribly wrong. Um, and I received a phone call uh, from one of my detective superintendents who said, uh, Peter, I need to interview you. Well, sorry, why? Well, I, maybe I don't want to be interviewed. He said, no, I need to interview you, and it will be under more caution. And basically the world fell out um and i went the next day to um an interview room in a police station i mean it shouldn't perhaps have come as too much of a surprise to me because th this all resulted from my my very best friend uh the best man at my wedding the godfather of my eldest daughter um a guy i'd been in partnership with both in the plain clothes and in the drug squad he'd been arrested uh, about six weeks prior to this, and there was a big anti-corruption inquiry going into him. So it was real line of duty stuff, you know. Um, and I suppose because of my closeness to him, my friendship with him, the the spotlight fell on me. And so I was I was interviewed probably for about eight hours that following day, and at the end of it, I was suspended. And I was suspended from duty for nearly two and a half years. Um, and that not only knocked like a 10-year hole in my career, um, but it absolutely turned on its head everything. Everything that had driven me into the police, everything I'd experienced. And it had a, a, a profound effect on me. Um, you know, it's 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 difficult to articulate how how the police works if you've never been in it. But you know, the the, the sense of camaraderie, the sense of sacrifice, the sense of we're all in this together against the bad guys is 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 something that runs through every police officer, I would say. To then all of a sudden have that completely turned on its head completely through 180 degrees and all the resources, all the investigative skill, all the determination to prosecute being focused back on yourself was difficult to say the least, damaging un undoubtedly. Um, and I then had to fight the organization I'd been part of to clear my name, to try and prove my innocence. Because, you know, throughout all of this, I'm thinking there's a little voice in my head that's saying, what do they think I am? Do they not know me? As the last 20 years counted for, for nothing? I'm not a criminal. Why are they giving me a criminal caution? Why, why, why are they interviewing me under caution? 
And every, when I say, you know, I had to fight the organisation, it really did feel like that. And and every request, every request for information, every request for disclosure, every request for access to documents was met with a refusal. No, 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 no. And it crushes you. It absolutely crushes you. And I know, I know now why I was suspended um, and what they hoped to achieve. They they believed, the, the, the force believed that I had the information that would unlock the prosecution against my best mate. And I didn't. But could I get them to believe that? No, no. I was subsequently interviewed maybe five or six different times. Um, I, I got to the state and, and you know, this this was, a lot of this was was really quite, how to describe it? Uh, I mean, I, th- I think I've used the word sinister before, but but it was, it, it was designed. And these may have been some of the tactics that I'd used myself in, in previous investigations, but it was designed to put maximum pressure on me, try and force me to, to, to cave into that pressure. And, you know, if, if I could have done, I probably would have done, but I didn't have what they wanted. I didn't have the information that they wanted. So, you know, one thing that springs to mind, there's a point in this where they change the venue of the interview the night before. So I'd been called to, to an interview and they changed the venue the night before to a police station with a custody suite, which is a very subtle way of saying, we're going to arrest you tomorrow. And they left me with, whatever, 16 hours to dwell on that and to try and think of of, of what my next move was. And it, again, it, it's, it's difficult to articulate how how much pressure that puts on you. But you know, this this was you know, that sort of pressure was 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 building and was being, in my humble opinion, deliberately applied and increased throughout the period with a view to me saying, okay, enough's enough. I'm gonna spill the beans on my mate Tony. I didn't have the beans to spill. And they they couldn't get that. They never ever got that. Um and I remember, you know, throughout this, and I was never, I don't think I ever sought a diagnosis of, of depression or or whatever, but I'm pretty convinced that that I was certainly at, at some stage. And I say that because, you know, I was probably demonstrating an awful lot of the typical symptoms. So, you know, irritation, lack of sleep, um, disturbed sleep patterns, over-reliance on alcohol, um, various other sort of classic symptoms, um, but also uh, the, the the sort of behaviour that I was I was exhibiting at the time was was obsessive. Um, it, I mean, you know, I've been a detective, so I was I was, if you like, counter investigating myself. So it was me, one one person, and I had a. a a federation friend if you like um so a representative from the police federation who would support me and who was a, a route back into the organization but even the federation were were being marginalized at that stage and i had solicitors but again uh, solicitors work quite quite slowly in some cases and they're very very thoughtful and very measured in what they do and i but i wanted answers now and i i would come down i had you know box files 20 box files of of evidence of disclosure of documents that have been served on me during interviews all that sort of stuff and they were spread out around my my usual sitting chair in the living room and they they basically never moved really for for months and months and months and my my routine would be to come down in the morning in my dressing gown and I would start and I'd be I would be reading through all of those documents all about me many of which, you know, were conversations I'd had that had been recorded on the phone. So that they'd, they'd had my phones uh, intercepted for, for, for months and months and months. And I'm trying to pick out bits of evidence. I'm trying to pick out points to prove. The, the way that I would vet, for instance, a, a, a file for a serious crime, a murder, a robbery, or a rape, or something like that. And, and so this counter-investigation was, was my life. 
that that was it. So every day, without fail, down, head in the books, head in the papers. And, you know, it would come two, three, four o'clock in the afternoon. I'd still be there in my, in my dressing gown, having not got dressed or anything like that. Um, and, and some days, you know, you get a letter from the solicitors saying, no, they've refused another disclosure or they've done this. And it just crushes you, just absolutely crushes you. So, you know, there were days, I can remember days where I, I just literally curled up on the floor and just couldn't move, just absolutely debilitated by the the overwhelming pressure of um, that the organisation that I'd loved, the organisation that I thought loved me, was now bringing to bear. Um, and, you know, a lot of these people were my friends. They were people I'd joined the job with, people I'd had a pint with, people I'd played rugby with. And they they were turning on me. And, again, that little voice in the back of my head, what do they think I am? How how bad do they think I, I, I am that I would I would do any of these things that they, they are now accusing me of? So, yeah, so that went on. Um, for the first 18 months of that period, it was potentially a criminal investigation. 18 months with the threat, basically, of going to prison, hanging over me. And I hadn't done anything. <laughs> I know everyone says that. Oh, I never did nothing. But... I honestly, I knew it inside out. I knew what the allegations were inside out. And I also knew what the allegations were against my friend. So after about 18 months, they, they, um, uh, the force wrote to me and said, yeah, the CPS have decided there's no case to answer. Oh, what, really? Thanks very much for that. So that was a weight off. However, we're now going to apply discipline proceedings to you. So again, another near 12 months of... Um, Discipline interviews, um, separate disclosure over police discipline code offences, which resulted in a, in a hearing before the, the chief constable. Um, in early 2001, I think it was. Um, it may have been late 2000, I'm not sure. But um, I, I returned to work in in 2001, having been reduced in rank by by one rank. So they, they busted me to, to inspector. And that was you know, basically over procedural shortfalls that, strangely enough, um, would be exposed in most people, I think, if, uh, if, if ever they looked. And I, and I think it was a almost a, a justification for, for, for what had been done. Um, that's just my view. And I, I've never really spoken to anyone about it, anyone that was in the investigation team. I was hoping to. Um, I was hoping to speak to my old super, but, but unfortunately he died. Um, so yeah, so now I'm I'm left in the situation of going back to work, and it's uh, it's as if nothing had happened, as far as the the job's concerned. Not for me, because not only have I been reduced in rank, which is a huge embarrassment and a, and a disgrace, um, but you know all those people that you there's <laughs> that old adage, isn't it? Be kept, be nice to the people that you pass on the way up, because you might meet them on the way down. Well. Thankfully, I I think I always was, but I was meeting people on the way down again because I'd been reduced in rank, and I was having then to sort of fight my corner and re-establish my position uh, in in the job. And you know, as I say, there was very much an element of well, that's all sorted then. Just move on, pull yourself together, get on with it. Um, so there was no support as such. Um, you know, and that that is is perhaps best exemplified. I was called in to see um, the superintendent in charge of HR, and I went in with my federation friend by my side, and he said, "Peter, you, you don't need your federation friend now." And this guy was a, a friend of mine. I said, "Dave, I can't get past the front door. I'm not allowed past the front door." because you've still got my warrant card. I can't even get into this building. I've been through the mill. I've been dealt with, but I'm still treated as a complete outsider. That's why I've got my Federation friend with me, because he's the person who's got me through the front door to see you. And, you know, they just didn't even think about anything like that. So um, so then came the business of, of rebuilding the career. And um, it's, it's funny how many of your, your friends, your former allies, 
no longer want anything to do with you when you're tainted in in any sort of way. So it was very much a case of of doing it on my own. I had one or two allies left who who, who helped out, um, but it's uh, again, it's 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 a very strange relationship that a, a, a police force has with anything about corruption. You may have seen Cressida Dick, the, uh, the commissioner of the Metropolitan Police, on the news the other night, and and her words exactly represent the sort of further uh, further and, and and zealotry with which the police will pursue a whiff of, of corruption that should come as a huge reassurance i think to the public but you know that it's almost as if they'll drop everything and um they will bring all of the resources to bear if if there is a whiff of corruption and and that's what's happened with what happened with with me but um having then been tainted with it it's very very difficult then to 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 rebuild and re-establish your credibility but that, that is what i did and so i sort of took my medicine which was a bitter pill to swallow i have to say and and rebuilt um i was never entertained to go back into the cid um for some reason they thought that was uh that was even though that was my history they, they thought that was not the thing to do so i got a succession of really difficult postings um when when i returned both when i eventually recovered my rank um and subsequently so um i became head of custody which was a really considered to be a difficult posting um i managed to secure a a secondment to the department of constitutional affairs for a little while which which meant a promotion back to superintendent uh and then i came came back into the force as the superintendent in charge of uh, management development and training which was a again a really, really difficult job um uh, yeah that was a very uh very tricky two years and then uh i was then approaching the end of my service um 30 years I, you get to know in the in the in the police that there's there's something that happens, but you, you get to know when you're no longer flavor of the month. Uh, and I'd already been through that that experience in spades, really, with the suspension. But um, you, you get to know, you know, there's there's younger people coming through who are being pushed, who are being um, asked. You know, that they, they were now the people that I was just before I got suspended. So um, I I finished my career looking after the policing of party conferences. You know, so the, the Liberal Democrat party conference in 2010 um and the labor party conference later that year of course the, the liberal democrat party conference was by then a party of government because they were in coalition with the conservatives so you know it, where we were in merseyside we'd never done that before so that was a whole new thing um and that was really interesting but uh but that that's the role i finished my career on and you know never say never um I, I look back on it now and I think about how how I coped with it. Uh, and there are, the, there are some sort of key elements to that, one of which is the unequivocal support of my family uh, and the importance of having you, your family around you. Um, and also one or two allies in, 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 the, in the force. So my immediate boss, who was... An amazing fella. Um, he, he really, he really was an amazing fella. He was hugely respected as a very old school, very practical, very wise um, bloke. And he made himself available to me basically all the time. Um, now, he, he was going to be a very, very busy fella, but uh, he made himself available to me. He was a sounding board. He never questioned me, never really... You know, said anything about the, the the process of the investigation. He was just there as a as a as a listener and as a supporter, and all the stuff that I was trying to do to to divert myself from, you know, the uh, the, the difficulties I was in. He would support. So things like going on a holiday, for instance, which was a difficult thing to 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 plan because I had to seek permission. So he said, "No, seek your permission from me, and I'll grant it." Don't bother going to the, um, the, the the inquiry. Seek it through me, and all of that sort of stuff took a lot of pressure off. And and you know I, I I am ever thankful for him. But he was one of probably only four or five people who stuck with me. 
uh, throughout that from from the police side of things. So Peter, I I'm, I'm listening deeply because it's just such an incredible story. I can't imagine that many people have gone through an experience like that. No, no, well, I, I, I don't think many people do. It, even in the police, you know, it's it's not it's not the sort of thing that happens every day. And suspension, I mean, particularly now, that I mean, at the end of this, there were a lot of questions to ask of the inquiry and the uh, the investigation and the methods that they used. Um, and the then chief constable, who was new to uh, to Merseyside, it was Norman Besson. Um, he he asked some very very pointed questions of the investigative investigative team. Um, and I think since then, suspension as a a tool um, has has reduced uh, the, the use of it has reduced significantly. So so not many people get it even in my job, um, but I mean it, it happened to a very close friend of mine who's a doctor <laughs> about two years ago, and and she felt exactly the same way. You know the alienation, particularly from from a job that you've sacrificed so much for, you know, uh, and, and all of a sudden to realise that it counts for nothing. You know, so all the, you know, the missed birthdays, the uh, cold dinners, the two hours sleep before going back to court in the morning, all the sitting in dodgy, frozen observation points or on top of Liverpool Cathedral, freezing your toes off, <laughs> keeping observations on, counts for nothing. Absolutely nothing. Um, and I, you know, at the point that I was suspended, I, I was quite a rarity because I had never had a complaint made against me. Not even a complaint, you know, of incivility or anything, or, you know, someone getting a ticket that they thought they didn't deserve. Never had I had anything like that. So this really was from hero to zero in, in one fell swoop. And, and it was painful. And I can't imagine feeling like that for two and a half hours, two and a half days, two and a half weeks, but two and a half years to be going through that. I mean, I just don't even know how you managed to come back and come back to an organisation that had, as you as you said, you know, you you had to fight them, you'd had to to prove your worth, and this is. You, you said you went into the police force because you had a sense of responsibility and duty and and justice, you know, that there's strong justice. And yet to then be on the receiving end of such a huge injustice. Yeah. How does that work? <laughs> well, it doesn't. <laughs> I mean, that, and, and, but that, that, that is exactly the nub. You know, it's, it's, it's the sense of betrayal and, and disloyalty is, is, it's it's unbelievable. It's 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 indescribable. As I say, you know, when when you're in an organisation like 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 the police, you know, you feel that you're all in it together. You you you're all fighting evil. You you, it's the good guys against the bad guys. You know, it's 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 playground stuff in a way, in a simple sort of way in your head, and then it all gets turned against you, and you think, whoa, I'm not the bad guy here. Why 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 are you doing this to me? Um. And you know that then gets compounded, as I say, with the the way the investigation was was handled, the the, the fact that you know some of your best friends um, are being turned against you. Um, you know, I even had it. I'd, I'd be walking down the street in in the town near where I live, and I'd see someone who knew me from the job, and they cross the cross the road to avoid me. You know, it's like you know, you're running down the road with a bell shouting, unclean, unclean. It's um, it's horrendous. And that just was not me. I was, you know, as I say, I was flying. I was I, I was destined to be, if this hadn't happened, I am quite sure I would have been at least an assistant chief constable. Because because I was, and I don't say that out of any sort of arrogance, but I was on track. And I was, I had the allies. I had the the, the right sort of support. That would have happened, and this this event, you know, although it was two and a half years suspended, I I've worked it out that it's probably knocked a ten year hole in in my career uh, overall, and it probably I, I think it probably affected the way that I worked when I went back to work um, before the suspension before this investigation. 
essentially I, I, I would have done anything for, for the job you know as I say 24 hour shifts no sleep um anniversaries birthdays whatever it is well sorry you come second this this is this is the job and the job is everything it's all encompassing but after that I was a lot more circumspect because because I knew that none of that counted for anything when the chips are downed it doesn't matter um it doesn't matter how good you were how dedicated you were how how honest you were even really um it's uh, it, it counts for nothing in, in the whole scheme of things um and that that was a rude awakening to to me um but that's not to say that i didn't throw myself back into the the, the job because it it was still the job that I loved, you know, and I, I took great satisfaction and great pleasure in, in, in going back and, and doing the right job, you know, um, and sort of living up to those, I suppose, vocational expectations that, that, that I entered the job with. We all have this strong sense of justice. Well, I do, and I'm, I know you do for sure. And we're all now line of duty experts, anti-corruption experts, because we watched the yeah. show. And I know you mentioned earlier about the real line of duty. And I just wanted to ask you about going back into an environment, re-embracing that environment that had thrown you out as an outcast. And you survived and you went back and, and you did, as you said, knocked a, a 10-year hole into your career. But where did the forgiveness come from? Was it linked to your why? Yeah, I think I think so. Yeah, I I, I think um, it, having thought about it, it my why and and the police transcends the, the the investigation and the extent of the investigation. You know, a lot of the investigation I think came down to personalities, the people that were involved, their own careers in in pursuing the the investigation, and you know, heart. Hand on heart, I I know these things happen, you know, and and I've been there, you know, I, I've I've been the person who's had that whiff of corruption and thought, I'm going to be on that, I'm going to be right on that, I'm going to make sure that that's that's sorted out straight away. So I understand why that sort of thing happens, and so that makes it in a way irrelevant to the the my wider why of why why am I why I was a, a police officer, you know, the, the vocation. There was still the job to do, you know. Vulnerable people still needed protecting. Bad guys still needed chasing. So it didn't really matter the fact that I had been through the mill and I had a good kicking along the way. It doesn't change the fact that people still need my attention. They still need my support. I still have a job to do. Um, and, and it's interesting you, you, you talk about forgiveness. There, there are some individuals I will probably never forgive I can live with them, you know, I can be civil to them, but I will never forgive them. But it's not the job that I'm forgiving. It's it's the individuals. And it's 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 tricky when you first go back because that that distinction is is still quite blurred. But the you know, with the passage of time, the distinction between that investigation, that that time, that two and a half years, the the distinction becomes a lot clearer between, you know, the the, the wider job that, that I was doing and the, the wider me if you like you know my my life my overall career where that career where that 30-year police career sits in the life of of Peter Edge um so yeah it, it wasn't easy to start off with but it's uh it, it, it got easier with time put it that way so having spent all those years standing up for the little guy you now do stand-up comedy how does that work <laughs> it's a strange transition, isn't it? <laughs> yeah. Three policemen go into a bar. No, uh, it was... I've always been a comic. I've always been, you know, right from when I was at school, you know, I mimicked the teachers, I mimicked the other kids, I'd tell jokes. You know, I'd, in, in in English classes, I can remember people saying, oh, they, let Peter Edge read his story, because I used to write funny stories. I've always had funny bones, you know. Um, and that's that's been a huge bonus and a huge benefit to me in in policing. You know, the the, the number of times I've been able to diffuse situations through humour, um, to to get people to um, engage with me because of humour, and 
and so throughout my police career, I, I was and still am an after dinner speaker. So I, I speak about the lighter side of police in the inner city. And, and there are some amazingly funny stories of, of doing this job. There are even funny stories I can take out of that period, that two and a half years. Not many, I'll, say, I'll give you that. But but there are funny, funny stories. And so I've told those stories for, for years and years and years. And then a couple of years ago, um, when I first started, if you like, more professional speaking, Somebody said, "Oh, you should you should do a stand up comedy course. You know, hone your skills." And I thought, "Well, do nothing else. I'll um, I'll I'll do that." And it was only it was I think six weeks, a couple of hours a week. So I did it, and it culminated in a stand up comedy performance for you know friends and family. And I went down like a house on fire. Um, and then you just get the bug, and it, you you then get on the circuit, the open mic circuit, and in whatever it was, in about 18 months, I'd done about 150 stand-up comedy gigs all over the country. And it's great because, you know, making people laugh is one of the best therapies ever. It's it's a great feeling. I mean, you, you must have had it yourself. You, know, you, you deliver that killer line or a punchline to a joke and the audience is rolling about laughing. And it's a great feeling, isn't it? It really is. It's, it's a lovely feeling. But... Um, I'm afraid the last 12, 18 months hasn't been a good hasn't been a good time for stand up. It doesn't work half as well on Zoom, I have to say. Um, I've done a few gigs on Zoom, but it's not the same. So I'm 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 desperate to get back on a stage in front of a live audience in a nice dingy, dark, seedy comedy club, and uh, and bang out some jokes. But it sounds great. And and I, I've been on the receiving end of, of your jokes. We've had a few online opportunities there within the Professional Speaking Association. And yes, I can agree that you are very funny. So thank you for having us well, in good spirits over funny. this last year and a half. It's been fantastic. <laughs> Peter, you mentioned about storytelling, that you've always been able to tell great stories. What is it about that? What is it about the passing down of stories that is important to you? Well, it's yeah, it's 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 funny you should say that um, because I've always been intrigued by storytelling. And then when I I was lucky enough, as I say, when I was in my my stellar phase of my career, when when I actually had a career, um, I, I won a scholarship to go to university. And so for three years, I went and studied full time at Liverpool University, and I did uh, psychology and communication studies. And um, one of the things about the the communication studies was about the importance of of myth and storytelling as a, a medium of, of um, cultural reference and transport, really. Um, and that, that has always intrigued me. And it, it's informed very much one of the things that I speak about now, which is, which is lost knowledge. Um, and just to explain what I mean by lost knowledge, it's, it's all, I suppose, it's the magic that people have inside them, the knowledge that people have, not just the sort of explicit knowledge the you know the the instructions the how to do something the uh, you know kings and queens of england all that sort of knowledge it's it's the it's the the tacit knowledge that disappears when people move on when they change jobs when god forbid you know they they keel over or get hit by a bus it's and you know i think that that knowledge deserves to be captured it deserves to be captured and used, and so that's that's what I talk about now. And, and I think about you know civilizations thousands of years old that have, through the use of myth and fireside chat and storytelling around campfires or whatever, have have managed to convey to subsequent generations a, a way of life, skills, abilities that have seen these civilizations or these cultures survive sometimes in, in some of the the harshest environments on our planet you know you, you think of people like the, you know the aboriginals in australia kalahari bushmen some of the um uh, south african indian people and you know they, they are in extreme conditions you know nobody's given them an ipad to write something down or wiki something or, or google something they they pass on their knowledge to the next generation through example through fireside chat whatever it might be through storytelling and, and i think that's a it's a wonderful thing uh and I, I i sincerely believe that we should be doing more of that now in this very fast-paced high-tech 21st century that that we live in um for everyone's betterment really but but really because 
that knowledge is so valuable. It's such a valuable resource. And we do nothing with it sometimes. Or too many organizations, businesses, people don't do anything with it. They just they just let it slip away. And that's a sin because I, I hate waste. Well, I feel that you today have shared a story, a story of, of justice, a story of resilience, a story of, as you said, unequivocal support from those around you. And there's a lot of learning to come from that. And again, you know, I feel that that is not lost knowledge that's going to be passed down and an opportunity to use as almost a metaphor to what many people have gone through over the last year of where there has been a a sense of injustice a sense of of not having the opportunities that you can prove yourself to prove your your worth your your innocence your your ability and but that fight that you you had was was in you because it was so strong and again, it was such a, a, a personal why for you to pull through because you it means so much to you. So, yeah, thank you so much for sharing your story on, on the show today. It's been, I'd say it's been emotional and it, it does, it just, just goes to say how difficult it is sometimes to prove. And you said, what do I, what do they, I think, or what do they think I am? And, and it is difficult sometimes to, to show people who you are and show people who you truly are because they can't see inside. They, they have to take it from, from what they can see. And often that can go against you. So, wow, it's, it, it's been really yeah. difficult to hear your story and to see how a rising star was you know allowed to fall or, or did fall from grace, in, but without any proof at all. Yeah, yeah, and uh, you know, as I said at the, at, at the beginning, the, the the motivation I believe was not because it was me; it was because I was a root to somebody else. And uh, there, there's two ways of looking at that, uh, that. I think I was a hostage in a way, in that they thought I had the information that would help them prosecute my best mate, but they also felt that I might have the information that I might exonerate him. And so I might, in the fullness of time, be called to his defence. And so by treating me as a suspect, that um, uh, diluted my credibility as a defence witness for him. And again, that's, that's, that's quite sinister. And it's quite sinister when you, you're dealing with someone's mind in, in the way, and, and when it's one of your own, and you... You know, you're quite prepared as an organisation or an investigative team to do that to one of your own. I, I find that very, very difficult to accept. And whatever happened to your best man, Tony? Um, he was eventually, he, he went to trial. They took him to trial twice, didn't convict him. Um, I mean, he was a wide load. You know, I, I don't, that's an expression that we use in the plea. He was a wide load. He wasn't good on admin. He he was a bit of a, you know, fly-by-night. He would use methods which I wouldn't. But he got the job done. And in all of those many, many hours and thousands of pages of evidence that I was served as disclosure, there was not one piece of evidence which was compelling to me that proved his guilt. There was a lot of circumstantial stuff, um, particularly about conversations that he'd had with uh, informants or chisers, as they're known, on line of duty. Um, but those are the sort of conversations you have with those sort of people. Um, so he he left the organisation. He, he he was sacked, but he'd actually left before he was sacked because he could. He was he was old enough to do that. And he's had a successful life elsewhere in a different in a trade that he used to operate before before he was a a, a bobby. Um and good on him. You know, he's uh I, I don't have anything to do with him anymore. I haven't seen him for probably for 10 years or so. But uh um they they never proved to me, beyond reasonable doubt, that he was guilty, that he was corrupt. Um I think in the very end, they managed to convict him convict him of an offence of aiding and abetting an attempt to commit council tax fraud. And that, that was about a girlfriend of his who was making a claim. So 
nothing to do with all of this alleged high level corruption with drug dealers and the like that that he was uh, he was originally accused of. So moving on to your CD comedy clubs and your after dinner speeches and your absolute mission to retrieve lost knowledge and, and hope that it continues to be to generations. What's next on the agenda for you, Peter? Well, um, who's to say? There's a number of things I'm doing at the minute. I'm, I'm, I'm one of those, I'm a bit of, I'm a bit like a dog chasing squirrels. You know, I just see something like, oh, squirrel, squirrel. <laughs> I'm going to have a go at that. So um, I'm in the process of writing a book, even though it's slowed down a little bit at the moment. And that's a book about, um, uh, it's a lifestyle book for for youngsters going destined for university. And it's going to be called something like The Survival Guide for students and I, I know you know about it um but it's it's it, you know so it's things like how how do you shop how do you budget uh how do you make the most of your leftovers so kids going to university who've never had a, a domestic science or a home economics lesson as they used to call them and have got really no idea how to boil an egg uh, just a handy little reference book that gives us some tips on on um, how to do some of the basic things there'll be a couple of recipes in there but it's not a cookbook it's more of a, um, a a lifestyle book a common sense guide so there's that um i'm hoping that if if international travel ever opens up the sort of freedom that i'd that, that i previously enjoyed i will go and walk um another camino i've walked as you know i've walked three three uh camino de santiago's by three different routes uh the last two of which featured in my uh my camino podcast because I'd, I'd made some sound recordings along the way and i'd love to do that again and and do a different route again and probably make more recordings and, and make them into a, a a walking podcast like that um the lost knowledge talk and and that sort of direction i'm still putting out there and trying to get some traction on still trying to get some interest but but again it's 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 almost it's one of those really frustrating subjects that people i don't think really appreciate how important it is until they've suffered the effects of it so it's 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 very much a um it's it's a preventative talk in in, in a way uh, and so trying to tell people what the benefits of it are um is 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 difficult it's difficult to convince them but i'm I'm still working on that Uh, i'm putting a lot of stuff out on linkedin about that just just in little short videos to explain some of the key points comedy i can't wait for the comedy clubs to to properly open up again uh, and and so i can get on with that um and the the sort of the golden thread that runs through it all is is the after dinner speaking uh and emceeing compare work um I've just just got my my first post lockdown confirmed um, after dinner gig, um, but that's for April 2022. I'm hoping that that there are going to be a few more coming to the diary between between now and then. But you know, life's like life's good. Um, I'm I'm very very fortunate. I've got three beautiful daughters, two absolutely gorgeous grandsons. They take a lot of my time. I've got a couple of motorbikes, a couple of push bikes. What more could you want in life, you know? And don't forget to mention the wife there, Peter. Well, there, there is that. <laughs> yes, yeah. I did mention it before. <laughs> <laughs> you did, you did. So, Peter, it's been an absolute pleasure having you on the show. Thank you so much for sharing why you do what you do. And do you have a way that people can get hold of you, Peter? Yeah, well, um, I, I've got a website which is just in the process of being redeveloped, which is um, it's just peteredge.net, so www.peteredge.net, or you could just Google Peter Edge Speaking. I'm, I'm on LinkedIn, um, so just search for Peter Edge. I think there's a couple of us on, on LinkedIn, but um, I'm the one with the, uh, the bow tie and the badge. You can email me at peteredge at sky.com. And and by all means, listen to the um, the Camino podcast. So there's 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 two on there: one from the Camino Primitivo and one from the Camino Portugues. And they're only usually about ten or fifteen minutes. So this it's just a couple of minutes of me rambling on about what I'm doing in Spain. Sometimes under the influence of excellent Spanish red wine, and sometimes not. Sometimes completely sober and blowing for tugs as I'm walking up a hill in Spain somewhere. They're great fun. I really enjoy listening to them. 
I described it as a an all round experience because you do have all of that wonderful sound. You've got the crashing of the waves or the the lorries that are rattling past you, and it yeah, it's fantastic. It really is an experience. So, and I love I love the play on words for a podcast. It's brilliant. So well done on that. <laughs> yeah, the PC podcast. Yeah, oh well, it's brilliant. Peter, thank you so much for coming on the show. Do you have some final words for the audience, please? Well, I suppose that the one thing I'd say that there was something that was said to me by a colleague of mine in the in in my darkest moments in in that very very dark two and a half years, and and he's he's a real wag this guy, um, but but it actually does sum up a little bit of it because he came in and he said to me, you know what, <sighs> today's news, tomorrow's chip papers. And, and uh, yeah, it sounds it sounds flippant, but actually, I, I took quite a lot of solace in that b- because, strangely enough, no matter what you suffer, no matter what happens, people will only remember it for so long, and it's past. Everything is history. Every time, every photograph is history. It's in the past. The future is what's important, and even if you've been right down, like me, lying on the floor, curled up, overwhelmed. There's light at the end of the tunnel. You've just got to find it. You've just got to push towards it and keep pushing towards it. Thank you for listening to the Focus on Why podcast. I'm Amy Rowlandson, and if you've enjoyed this episode, please leave me a five-star Apple podcast review. Connect with me on LinkedIn, Instagram, and Facebook, and become a member of my inspiring, uplifting and positive Focus on Why Facebook group. I help people to focus on their why with clarity, uniting their passion with their purpose with a plan to create the life they truly desire. If you would like me to help you focus on your why, then please book a free 20-minute coaching call via candidly.com forward slash Amy Rowlandson. And if you haven't already, please sign up for the Friday Focus weekly newsletter via my website, amyrowlandson.com. Have a purpose, have a plan, focus on why.